Welcome to the Redeemer Lincoln Square podcast. Our church began in 2017 and is located just down the street from Lincoln Center in the Lincoln Square neighborhood of Manhattan. Our podcast will primarily feature sermons from our Sunday worship service and the occasional interview or ministry resource. We hope you'll subscribe. Now, here's today's message. Today's reading is Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the, uh, to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Amen. Thank you, Bianca, and thank you, Chuck. And good morning again, and welcome to Redeemer Lincoln Square. My name is Joe, and I'm one of the pastors here. Now, all throughout spring, we're going through a sermon series on the book of Galatians, and what we're going to do is we're going to go through the entire letter verse by verse. Now, if you were to read through, however, uh, this letter in its entirety, it takes a little less than 25 minutes to do so, and I encourage you to do that either by yourselves or in your community groups. You'd notice just how uh, passionate Paul is in this letter. Out of all the letters that he wrote, he uses probably some of the, most, uh, the, some of the strongest languages and words uh, here in this letter, and he's so passionate because throughout the letter, Paul is pleading to the churches in Galatia to go back to the core message of Christianity, what makes Christianity what it is, that is the good news of the gospel. Now, I was re- I'm reminded of this time and time again when I... Um, so I meet up with a f- uh, good friends of mine uh, almost every Monday. And this friend group, I'd say most of them won't identify as Christians. And so naturally, you know, we don't really talk about Christianity. Uh, but when we do get around the topic of Christianity, it's not usually about the claims of Christianity. Like how could a good God allow suffering in the world and things of that nature. Instead, when we talk about Christianity and when we broach the topic, we usually talk about other Christians, and the church. And you know, it's fascinating to hear how they describe uh, the church. 
They usually say, you know, church is just like any other organization because they're primarily concerned about generating enough revenue to keep their doors open, which means that in order for them to do that, they have to prop up a celebrity that happens to be charismatic or a good speaker and that kind of a thing. And usually what that celebrity would do is they would, you know, moralize and spiritualize everything so as to get people to open up their wallets to give enough money to keep the church going and and all those kinds of things. And as I'm hearing them uh, speak about these things, initially, my reaction is to get defensive and say, no, 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 our church isn't like that or not all churches are like that. And I usually get defensive initially, but if I were to listen to them long enough to hear what they're saying... There's usually enough truth in them and what they say for it to sting a little bit. And at the end of those conversations, I usually leave them being thankful because it makes me think and ask the hard questions, not only about our church, but about my ministry. And it leads me to this question of like, what if today's churches, including ours, Redeemer Lincoln Square, what if we were all about the gospel? Is there anything that is unique to the gospel that if you were to, uh, if you're entirely shaped by it, is there anything to the gospel that would give our churches the kind of supernatural power and appeal that it was designed to have? And would that make us different than any other community in the world? Now, friends, if you were to look through our passage this morning, I think it gives us three answers to that question. There are three things that need to be vigilantly vigilantly maintained and fought for if we are to be a church that stands on, is defined by, and has everything to do with the gospel. So let's go over this passage under three headings. First, let's take a look at gospel freedom. Secondly, let's take a look at the gospel unity that it produces. And lastly, let's take a look at the gospel calling that brings this community to be. So in order for us to be a church that is all about the gospel, in order for us to be unique from every other community that we can find in the world, we need gospel freedom, we need gospel unity, and lastly, gospel calling. So first, gospel freedom. Now in this passage, in the very beginning of it, what we hear is that Paul travels to Jerusalem. Now, why does he do that? Well, first of all, he goes in response to a revelation from God, but he also goes, if you look at verse 4, because there were false believers who made their way to the Galatian churches to stir up controversy. Now, what was the controversy about? Here's what it was. On the one side, you had Paul who was preaching this message that that said the gospel is for people of all cultures and backgrounds who trust in Jesus. That's it. But on the other side, there, were these group, there was this group of people that he calls the false believers who were saying the gospel, yes, is for people of all cultures and backgrounds who trust in Jesus and are willing to become culturally Jewish through the ritual of circumcision and observation of Jewish laws and customs. Now, apparently, this controversy was such a huge deal for Paul that he felt the need to travel to Jerusalem and really confront and hash things out with these apostles. Now, why was this such a big deal? We find the answer to that if you read uh, verses 4 to 5. And let me read them for you. And as I do so, let me emphasize two words uh, from there. 
It says, this matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. And then he goes on in verse 5 by saying, we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, here's why this controversy was so important for Paul to address in person, quickly, and decisively. Because to Paul, the truthfulness, the authenticity of the gospel, had everything to do with the freedom that it produced. The freedom of the gospel cannot be taken apart from the truth of the gospel. Otherwise, he would argue, Christianity is just like any other religion or philosophy. Because what makes Christianity unique? What makes the message of the gospel unique? What Paul would say is that salvation is not achieved by living up to some standard, but received rather as a gift of sheer grace. Grace meaning unmerited gift. Which means... There are absolutely no obligations that are to be added onto the gospel. Otherwise, it would be no gospel at all. See, what he's saying is the gospel isn't the gospel unless it lifts all of your burdens off of your shoulders, every single one of them. And to add a feather of a burden or even a dust of it would negate the entire thing altogether. Because the gospel is all about freedom. Now, you may be asking, what kind of freedom are we talking about here? Now, let me, uh, in relation to this text, uh, highlight just two, um, two of those things. Two kinds of freedom. First is a freedom in how you relate to yourself. The gospel gives you freedom in the way you relate to yourself. Now, if you were to look at these laws and rituals in Judaism as highlighted in the Old Testament, much of it had to do with the forgiveness of sins. So if you were to uh, read them over, there were animal sacrifices, there were blood that was shed, there's water, and all of it was intended to a spiritual reality of our spiritual uncleanness and highlight our need for forgiveness. But in Christianity under the New Testament, the gospel said that these laws and these customs were ultimately pointing to Jesus who sacrificed himself once and for all on the cross, which meant that there were no more sacrifices that were necessary, there was no more blood that needed to be shed, because all that is required now because of Jesus is nothing. That's what the gospel message said. Now this means, if you were to internalize it within yourself, if you are a Christian, you live with two realizations simultaneously. The first realization is that you're simply not good enough. However, this realization is not meant to drive you to despair, but it's meant to drive you to grace, to the freedom that you have in Jesus, to be freed from all of your pressures to be better. And I can't think of a better example of somebody who embodies all of this freedom than babies, right? Babies live with their biological limitations just fine, right? They're not beating up on themselves for having whatever they do, right? (laughs) Really, the only skill that babies have is receiving, right? Babies are really good at that. Good at receiving love, receiving care, 
and crying out to receive more of it when they're not getting it. Friends, I have a little girl, and I often think that babies are the freest a human being will ever be because babies are completely at ease with themselves, with who they are, their limitations, and they're absolutely true to their nature. The psalmist in the Old Testament thought about this the same way. He says in, uh, the psalmist says in uh, Psalm 131, it says, I have calmed and quieted myself. He says, I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Friends, do you know the calm and quiet that the gospel brings? Do you know the contentment that the gospel brings? Because that kind of, of quiet and contentment can only come if you can taste the freedom of the gospel that tells you, yes, you are simply not good enough. But because of Jesus, you can be who you are. So that's the first kind of freedom, freedom in how you relate to yourself. But secondly, there's freedom in how you relate to God. Now, going back to Jewish laws and customs, now, we just said one set of them pointed to our need for forgiveness, but there was another set of laws that pointed to what we call God's holiness that said that God is unlike any other created being, and he is so radiant and he is so beautiful that you can't just approach him as you are. So there are these whole sets of laws that were designed around it because if you were to approach God in all of his radiance and beauty, you would just crumble and die. Right? When, Chuck, when uh, Pastor Chuck sends me pictures of his daughter Quincy, right? she's just so cute, right? There are sometimes I just want to crumble down to the ground and he's so cute. And we get that, right, in a microscopic sense with the different kinds of beauty that we see out in the world that makes us small. But the holiness of God that tells us that he is the ultimate beauty before which we will be pulverized if you were to see him as he is. So in the Old Testament, we get an example of this, right? How this is manifested. Because God only showed his imminent presence in a very specific area within the temple that was designed. And even that area was covered by a veil. And it took all these rituals and cleansing and even a very specific kind of garment that needed to be put on just to make sure that you could enter into God's presence. And it was God's way of making provision for, for people to enter into his presence. But how, if you look in the, uh, the New Testament, if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, it says that the veil that kept the presence of God hidden was torn in two which meant that we can now freely enter into the presence of God through Jesus. And here's what this means. The moment you become a Christian, right now, right this moment, you have free access to God's presence apart from any ritual. Friends, one of the most asked questions to a pastor that I get Somebody will come and say, Pastor, I want to experience God's presence. And I know you're going to tell me to read the Bible and to pray, but I kind of don't know how to do that. So, you know, how should I go about doing this? And I used, I'll tell you, in the years past, I used to be very prescriptive in the things that I said. I would say, you have to have what is called a quiet time. And what I want you to do is get a Bible. Like, the bigger the Bible, the better it is. The more explanations that are on there, the better it is. And 
and, and, and you, know, you need to go to a quiet place, and you need to read the Bible according to a very strict schedule and make sure, again, it's quiet. And when you're done with the Bible, and if you've studied enough, uh, that's when you're ready to pray, because you need to make sure your prayers are right. Make sure you pray quietly, too, right? So have quiet time. And friends, I, you know, I make fun, but don't get me wrong. Like, there's nothing inherently wrong with this approach. But I began to ask the question, is this not a prescribed ritual that I am also giving out? Because the way, the way I experience God, there's nothing quiet about the setting because it's usually with other people. And I have to say, hearing the Bible read, like this morning, by someone else other than me, when I pray with others and I hear them talking to God, when I'm in deep conversation with a friend about what God is doing in my life or in their life over coffee or preferably over a beer, right, that's what tends to be valuable for me. And friends, even when I'm alone, I actually start my time with prayer. And usually when I you know, run out of words to say, maybe I'll go, I'll go back to the Bible and I'll, I'll read and then I'm filled up and I can pray again and You know, if you were to look into my life, it almost looks erratic. But the point is, there is now freedom in the way we approach this God because there are no rituals that are needed. You have immediate, imminent access to him, yourself as an individual, if you are a Christian. There's freedom in how you relate to this God. There's freedom in how you relate to yourself And the whole message that Paul was preaching is that this gospel is free or it's no gospel at all. And so the question is, what would it look like for every single one of us to experience and embody this freedom? Completely at ease with our limitations, with our gifts and who we are. And completely at ease with God who gave access to himself immediately and imminently without, without any burdens attached. So that's the first point. For a gospel community to be a gospel community, we start here with gospel freedom. But if we were to embody that, it will lead us to the next point that we need to discuss, to gospel unity. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after our Sunday worship service. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastor and other members of our church community. If you have questions about today's message, send an email to lsq at redeemer.com or join us for our Sunday worship service. Now, here's the remainder of today's teaching. Gospel unity. Now, we said earlier that this controversy arose because there were some Jewish Christians that traveled to the churches in Galatia and started convincing people to obey these Jewish laws and customs. Now, as we said, they had their effects on an individual level, right, restricting the freedom that we talked about. But it also had effects on a communal level because, in another sense, these laws and customs that were now cultural identity markers for these Jewish Christians ended up becoming the dividing line between the Jews and Gentiles. And for Paul, observing these things, for Paul, this was unacceptable. Why is that? Well, if the gospel is truly free, it needs to be free not only of moral or ritualistic requirements, it also needed to be free of cultural 
requirements. So if the gospel is indeed free, if you are a North American, let's say, and you're allowed to bring your North Americanness into Christianity, right? That is an expression of the worship that you see this morning. But if you are an Asian, you are allowed to bring your Asianness into Christianity. If you are an African, you are allowed to bring your Africanness into Christianity. The gospel says there is no part of yourself that needs to be checked at the door and adopt another culture in order for you to enter into a gospel community. And Paul here is insistent on the Gentiles being allowed to be themselves and not have to shed any of their Gentileness and adopt Jewishness before they became Christians. So he was telling these Jewish Christians, listen, you want to keep your traditional Jewish laws as, and customs as part of your heritage? Fantastic. All of those things are valuable and to be treasured and we ought to be thankful, right? Because Paul himself says the gospel came, uh, came from the Jews. And so it's absolutely, go ahead and keep those things. But there's no way I'm going to let you impose what has now become your culture onto others and drive a wedge into these communities in Galatia. That's what Paul is saying. Now, it's easy for us in our modern context to read this and to kind of roll our eyes at these Jewish Christians and say, you know, these guys are so narrow-minded. Thank God we're a lot more accepting now, right? But that's why we have to remember we're actually not at all, not so different. How? Because unless you really, really grasp the gospel of grace alone, and you're vigilant about keeping it, then momentum of your heart will carry you to eventually elevate some aspect of your culture to give you a sense of righteousness over others. Now let me give you a really immediate example. Right, we're here at Redeemer Lincoln Square, and we together worship in probably one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the country, if not the world, And we also happen to live in a city that elevates wealth and all that it takes to get wealthy as righteousness. And for those of us that call this city home, who swim in these cultural waters, our temptation will be to do the same. Now what does this look like, practically speaking? Let me point the finger at myself. Okay. Uh, so my wife and I moved to New York City from the suburbs of Connecticut 10 years ago. And uh, soon after we moved, there was this culture shock, having come from a mostly working class kind of immigrant background uh, to New York City. And I really had to make a lot of adjustments. And I have to tell you, out of all the adjustments that I made, the one that I am the most ashamed of, that I will share with you now, <laughs> Reluctantly. (laughs) You know, slowly, over time, I I found myself catering my ministry efforts towards and even in favoring at times the wealthy and the influential. And friends, I have to tell you, the clearest sign of this was in the area of teaching and preaching. And for those of you who do any amount of public speaking might identify with this, 
right? For those of us who speak in public, we fight these dual motives because on the one hand, we want to speak in a way that is clear, that is informative and even inspirational for the sake of the hearer. There's that motive. But it's always competing with the motive that wants to impress for the sake of me. And if you were to ask me, like, who do you really want to impress? It was really telling. If you were to ask me then, I would say, you know what? The wealthy, the influential, and the credentialed New Yorker. And I have to, I have to say, that was the audience for me more times than I'd like to admit. And why, why am I sharing this awful, embarrassing story? Because deep down in every single one of our hearts, even though we'd, we would not like to admit, there are tendencies We have to favor one group of people according to an aspect of their culture over another group of people. And let me ask all of us, if you were to take a collective temperature of our church community, is there an aspect of culture that is favored over another? And friends, what this passage is telling us is that whatever that aspect is, that's what's being added to the gospel as a requirement to enter into our community. Because the gospel requires nothing but ourselves, our whole authentic selves before the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and a gospel community that says you need to shed some aspect of yourself and adopt another self over others when you enter this community is no gospel community at all. That is what Paul is fighting against, and this is the reason why Paul was so vigilant against pushing back against the Jewish culture that was being imposed on these Gentiles. And we at Redeemer Lincoln Square, starting from myself, we at Redeemer Lincoln Square, we need to be just as vigilant in keeping watch over our collective cultural preferences if we are to be a gospel community. Now friends, this is hard work. And you know how I know this is hard work? Take a look at your group of friends. Because we tend to hang out with people that tend to be similar to us racially, culturally, socioeconomically. We don't want things to get awkward. We try to, we tend to keep it culturally homogenous. And so the question is how are we to do this? And it's certainly not by imposing this virtue of diversity as requirement for this community. And say, if you're not willing to be diverse, you cannot enter into this gospel community. That, ironically, is equally as destructive to the gospel as the thing that we are pushing back against. And so, what are we to do? In order for us to be a gospel community that is unified in the gospel, it needs to, lastly, be born out of gospel calling. First, there needs to be gospel freedom that leads to, secondly, gospel unity. But it needs to be born out of gospel calling. So let's take a look at this final point. Now, if you were to look throughout this passage, and really the entire letter, Paul here is taking on a bit of a strange tone. And it's hard to figure out. Because look how he describes the three apostles he's meeting with. And before, by the way, uh, James... Here in this passage, and Cephas, or better known by his uh, Greek name, Peter, and John, 
These three were considered to be pillars of the early Christian movement. And listen to how Paul refers to them. If you look at verse 2, he says, I met privately with those esteemed as leaders. Okay. What's your motive with that? Well, let's go down to verse 6. He says, as for those who were held in high esteem, and then he goes on to say, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. And then he goes on to say, they added nothing to my message. And then he goes on to say, on the contrary, they recognized me as being on equal footing with them, and they affirmed my ministry. Now, what is going on here? Do you sense a bit of maybe insecurity, defensiveness in Paul? Why does he sound this way? Well, he does this for two reasons. Not because he's insecure. Not because he's being unnecessarily defensive. There's two reasons. One is practical, and the second is spiritual. The practical reason, let me give you the practical reason. These Jewish Christians, um, this is how they were spreading their kind of false uh, beliefs around. They were following Paul around these Galatian churches, and here's what would happen. Paul would go to these churches and preach the gospel message of grace. But soon after that, these Jewish Christians would come in and they would say, are you sure you want to believe this guy? I mean, he wasn't even directly, officially commissioned by the big dogs over in Jerusalem. If you really want to hear the gospel preached, you should go over there. Because they're saying something different. Right? And they're spreading these rumors around. And what Paul was finding that these rumors were really hurting Paul's ministry. So, he had to meet with these apostles to prove that independent of these apostles, he had the authority to preach because he received a direct commission from God. So that's the practical reason. But the second reason is spiritual in nature. And here's where I want to focus on for the rest of our time. If you look at verse 9... It says, James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace that was given to me. Let me stop there. So they recognized the grace that was given to me. And I asked this question all week. You know, Paul could have chosen any word to describe the commissioning that he received uh, from God. He could have said, You know, I talked to them and they recognized the power that was in me. He could have said they recognized my credentials. He could have said they recognized my former education in Judaism. He could have said they recognized my passion. He could have said they recognized the story, the crazy Damascus Road experience I had when I was going to persecute Christians and I met Jesus himself. He could have said they recognized the story that I had and they deemed me legit. Out of all the words that he could have used, why would he choose to use the word grace to explain his calling? Now, Martin Luther, the great reformer, he wrote this really famous commentary on the book of Galatians, and here's how he explains it. He says, when the apostles recognized the grace that was given to Paul, they recognized that this wasn't just the grace of what God called him to, to preach the gospel to Gentiles, but they were also recognized where the grace of God called him from. See, Paul was a bloodthirsty persecutor of the church. 
And he was at the center of this religious institution that was hell-bent on stomping out this Christian movement from the start. And so when Paul uses the word grace to describe his calling, he's recognizing the love of God that took him from where he was and brought him to where he is and would take him to where he needs to go, which would be to give his life in love and service for the sake of those he was persecuting before. And friends, here's why Paul was so vigilant about making sure that he was commissioned by none other than God himself to preach and no other human authority. Because again, to give even an inch to some kind of human power as having brought him to this place was to completely take away the transformative power of the gospel in his own life. He was a persecutor of the Christians that hated Gentiles. And what he's saying is, it took none other than the grace of God to bring me to a place where I became a Christian minister that was willing to die for the sake of Gentiles. And he's saying that's where the power of the gospel lies and in no other human authority. My friends, when I, uh, <clears throat> when I decided to become a Christian minister in college years ago, um, during that time, I called up an old friend of mine from high school, uh, an old friend of mine. And, uh, you know, because I became a Christian in college, he was, you know, very familiar with my, you know, my old ways, I guess. And, you know, we were catching up. <clears throat> And in the middle of a conversation, I told him I decided to become a Christian minister. And here's what I expected the response to be. I expected him to say, oh, that's great. You know, you decided to, you know, clean up your life and, you know, leave that all behind you and become a minister. You know, good for you. And, you know, I was hoping for a spiritual conversation that would lead to that. And, you know, I was a young minister. And so I wanted to talk all about Jesus and that kind of a thing. So that's what I was expecting. Instead, the reaction I got, nonstop laughter. Nonstop laughter for about a good 10 seconds. And not just like a chuckle, but like a straight up, like a full on cackle for about 10 seconds. And then he goes on to say, you know, uh, tell me the website of your church. I'm going to go on their message board. And, you know, message, this was about 15 years ago. I'm going to go on their message board and I'm going to expose all of your old ways. And they won't want you as your pastor anymore. And I stood there like I was on the phone with him and I, I, I... I was just dumbfounded. <laughs> Laughter? But let me tell you, I wish I understood this then. That in that laughter lay the power of the gospel. When the world looks at the church, do they see buttoned up, credentialed, well-behaved believers? Or friends, do they see the absurd power of grace that is able to bring messed up, flawed, broken people together into a community where none of it makes sense apart from the free grace of God that not only saves but empowers and sends people out in love and service to the world? Is that what they see? Because friends, in what religion and in what philosophy, where in the world apart from the gospel 
Can you sing amazing grace? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Nothing other than the gospel has the power to change you. Nothing other than the gospel has the power to unite people from all different backgrounds. And all of this is built upon gospel calling. No other human authority, no other credential, no other power, but simply the grace of God. Now let me just close our time by making this one last point. Isn't it interesting that with all of the buildup of tension within the passage and the resolution that we find, that in the very last verse, this is how our passage ends. That these apostles say, you are a legitimate minister of the gospel. And we are called to different contexts and all of that that is okay. But the one thing that we ask is that you remember the poor. And why is that important? Well, because Jesus' entire calling given to him by God the Father was to become one. Become one with the least of these, as we heard from Chris. Both spiritually but also physically, and bear the weight of the sins of the world on the cross to die, and now calls on his followers to do the same. And friends, the only way we'll remember our calling as a church to remember the poor that unites all churches is to see our own poverty that requires grace. And friends, the humility that is born out of it is what's going to allow us to experience freely the freedom of the gospel. To see those around us as being on equal footing with us and therefore giving us no excuse to exclude them and to look out into the world and identify with the least of these and to give our lives to them. And when we do that, that is what is going to make us unique from all other communities out there in the world that we see. And so friends, Redeemer Lincoln Square, Will you reflect on these things and ask God to move into your heart in such a way as to experience the freedom and the unity that the gospel brings? And my prayer, friends, is that the world will look at Redeemer Lincoln Square and laugh. And laugh at the absurd beauty of the gospel that is alive and working in our midst. And by the grace of God, let it be so. Let's pray. Our Father, this message may be hard for us to hear. It's hard for me to hear. God, because I want to take pride in, I want to find my righteousness in all these different things apart from your grace because it is so hard to admit that I am just not good enough. But God, we thank you for the gospel that tells us that that is okay because all the weight of our sin and brokenness was put upon Jesus when he hung up on the cross and died for our sins. And so God, help us to trust in that gospel message. And out of that, maybe hear the calling of our God who says, come to me just as you are, because I see you and love you just as you are. 
And as individuals who experience that freedom in the gospel, we unite us together and unite us as a community that stands on the gospel. And may we go out into the world and serve and befriend and become one with the least of these, patterned after our Savior who did the same. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning into our church's podcast. We pray that it can serve as a resource for you as you continue processing aspects of Christianity and growing in your faith. We hope you'll subscribe to our podcast, and we invite you to join us for worship on Sunday. We're located at the corner of West 64th Street and Central Park West. More details can be found on our website, lincolnsquare.redeemer.com. Thanks again for listening to the LSQ Podcast.